Hi, this is David Benjamin, co-author of Cracking Complexity, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is David Benjamin. David Benjamin is the co-founder of Syntegrity and chief architect behind its implementation of the complexity formula as laid out in the book, Cracking Complexity. David guides leaders and their teams through the application of the formula, helping them to get decisions and actions in days, no matter what the industry, type of challenge, or nature of the organization. He speaks on a wide range of topics related to complexity, effective and efficient problem solving, and human dynamics in systems. He's become a trusted advisor to companies such as 3M, Rush University, and Health Systems in Chicago, and Research Triangle International, as well as governments and non-for-profit organizations. He spends most of the rest of his time and energy on writing, family, long-distance running, and cracking cryptic crossword puzzles. He and his wife, Angie, lived near Toronto with their three daughters. He's here to share insights about cracking complexity, which he co-authored with his partner, David Kamlos, who appeared on my quest for the best in a previous episode. Welcome, David. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the content of Cracking Complexity with you. Before we start, though, when you were growing up, tell me, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? I would say, if I think in terms of some of my interests as as a kid when I was growing up, I'd have to call out sort of from music, Harry Chapin. I don't know how many people still know Harry Chapin, but what I was drawn to with him and what I was inspired by was that he was uh, doing music, but also telling stories. And so as I think back, uh, I'm a father now, as, as you just said, uh, as I think about things that really influenced the kind of father I try to be, some of his songs like Cats in the Cradle and Flowers Are Red kind of hit on some really important points that I recognized only years and years later are just part of the DNA of how I try to parent. I remember Harry Chapin's music as well. Did you listen to his albums or did you, didn't he have a TV show where he would actually spontaneously write songs by calling out to people in the audience? Uh, That I don't remember, but I certainly listened to albums and I saw him in concert a few times. And again, he was the kind of person you always, he really connected with an audience. He really felt like you were, you had a human being in front of you. And he was, I think it was a World Wildlife Fund or, or some very important cause he was giving a large amount of his proceeds from concerts to. So just very admirable, at least as I was growing up. That's certainly one that comes to mind. And if I could mention a second very quickly, being from Toronto and a lifelong Toronto Maple Leaf fan, there was a defenseman uh, who played in the 70s named Boreas Salming, who was a Swedish import. And he was dealing with all sorts of prejudice against anyone who wasn't Canadian at the time. And of course, the prejudice was nobody's as tough as a Canadian. But Boreas Salming was out there proving every time he played a game that he was one of the toughest players out there. And again, he was a fantastic defenseman and I was a fan. So certainly watching him go off the ice with an injury and coming back on in the next shift with stitches was always inspirational. Can you remember a time early in your career where you drew strength or inspiration and made a different decision because of those two influences or either one of those influences in your career or just in some path that you took? 
I think a, a lot of what I learned about, um, you know, as I was saying, parenting from Harry Chapin, for example, it really applies to working with people, I think, at least internally and probably often with customers. When I think about cats in the cradle and the message there about not neglecting people and making sure you spend time with people and always having the balance between work and life, that is completely something I believe in, completely something I've tried to implement as I've gone through busy and less busy phases of my career. And as I'm managing and mentoring people, it really is something I'm constantly reminding them about, just finding that balance and not letting yourself get out of balance for any reason. I think those are two wonderful influences to call on. And I thank you for sharing those. In Cracking Complexity, David, how do you define a problem that requires this approach? Yeah, we talk in the book. And actually, I think we have to say it less and less these days because people are starting to see the difference. We, we talk about the difference between complicated and complex. And this isn't language that we came up with. This is uh, coming from complexity theory. Uh, but when you're dealing with something complex, you're dealing with something that is not solved, not easily solved, not mechanistic, something that needs to kind of be cracked each time you face it. Because even though it may come with the same kind of label on the problem, whether that's growth or talent strategy or whatever it is, it's different each time because of the people involved, the organization involved, the changes around the organization. So that if you're trying to grow today and you were trying to grow five years ago, there isn't a blueprint that exists that you can just pull and execute. And in fact, nobody has a blueprint. So it's also not a good domain for reaching out to a traditional management consultant or striking a task force because everybody's got to figure it out from scratch each time versus a complicated challenge, which is mechanistic, which does come with a known solution, might need some expertise to execute the solution, but you can pretty much reliably solve it every time by bringing in the right expert. And so fixing a car would be an example of a complicated challenge, clearly not complex. David, how did you get interested in the complex area of problem solving? Was it something that you came across academically or with some early work experience that you had so that you really understood and chose to focus on this area to develop your expertise? I wouldn't say that I explicitly went out looking for it. I've got a math and computer science background. And I think for people who are drawn to math and computer science, there's certainly attributes that you have, sort of more holistic kind of thinking and the ability to abstract, you know, and see patterns from, from data. So those kinds of things always drew me to what later was labeled for me kind of systems thinking and being a generalist. So that early in my career, as I was doing the programming thing and starting to work my way into management, several people told me, you know, you're a really strong systems thinker. You know, you've got a good generalist set of skills and point of view. So that sort of got me into the zone where I was looking for how best to apply those things and ultimately found systems theory and complexity theory as very attractive and interesting for me. So you actually lay out the complexity formula as a 10-step recipe almost. Yep. And each of those requires a lot more different thinking skills because it's not convergent the way that many problem-solving tasks and algorithms are. Can you describe some of the key differences that stand out, such as, you know, as you go through this, there are some things that you have to do that require a lot different skill sets, like agreeing on the right agenda, asking the right questions. Can you highlight a couple of these areas that are most salient given all the experience you've had with implementing this over the years? 
Yeah. As you were asking that question, I was thinking, what's really different this approach versus what people might be used to doing when they're facing something big and complex is that there's an open-mindedness and sort of giving up control that any leader needs to accept because to try to control what the answer is or to be closed-minded and biased as you wade into something complex, it's completely counterproductive and it goes against you know, the nature of complexity where things are emergent and you kind of have to take them as they come. So that's sort of one aspect that I think is very different. And another aspect that's different is the notion of taking time on things that may not seem so important as you're in the rush to get to action. So for example, taking the time to write a really good question, which is kind of step two of the formula. And as an expression of what it is you're trying to solve for, it's been amazing to me as I've helped leaders through that and as I've listened to the way they've thought about it the degree to which there isn't alignment around them on what the right question is. And when you push people to bake in an aspirational goal, for example, or make the question really interesting, it's just not a natural skill or capability or area of focus that that people would normally spend as they try to get after something, again, under the pressure of deadlines and so on. So writing a question, uh, you mentioned taking time to have the right group of people collectively set the agenda for solving something. That's completely contrary to a lot of advice that's out there about meetings that say you have to have a preset agenda or else it's going to be a bad meeting. But actually taking the time with a group that you've brought together as they're deliberating on a question that you've authored, giving them the time to figure out what they have to talk about before they start talking about it is actually very, very foundational to getting them to real ownership of the answers they'll develop. And I guess I sort of skipped over the other thing that I would call it as characteristically the same, which is really spending time thinking about who the solvers should be. That's step three, talking about what is the right mix of people, the right variety of skill sets and functions and jurisdictions and authority and influence. What's the right mix of people? Erring on the side of a lot of people that can collectively get you to the right answers and to execution. I'm going to share a little bit of context from what I've gathered reading the book. And the approach that's being taken here is different in my mind. In Let me just share three ways and then use that as a jumping off point to make sure that I've understood it correctly and then talk about some further ways to apply it. But this approach is something where you're taking a complex problem, something where there isn't really a clear solution. So that's number one. It's not how do we repair something. It's how to create something that's new, that's never been done before. Secondly, a lot of times people will say, we don't have time to address this problem. And the approach you take is is to really understand the problem very, very thoroughly in the what I call the front-end loading stage. It's an engineering term. Yep. And you do a lot of front-end loading with it to understand, design it, come up with the questions, invite the right people. But in a very short period of time, typically two to three days, you're bringing people together from a variety of different industries. They're not all internal people, nor should they be based on this formula. And you're having them have different discussions in different roles in order to create these collisions, (laughs) these, these cognitive collisions, I guess, and have people look at it from different points of view and consider things in ways that they haven't before. And then to make sure that they are answering questions that are really 
relevant. One of the things that I loved about the questions that I learned reading the book was how the principles used. One of them was, if a question is an irritant, leave it in. If the question's a salve, change it. You don't want people reassured during this process. You want them to be looking at things that are prickly in order to address it from their point of view and bring that together in this stew of a conversation in order to bring out the flavor and the solutions. How much of that is accurate? (laughs) And what would you add to it to help people get a sense of what this process really does? That's a very different type of approach. I think that was very well put. And uh, it's too bad we're not recording this because I loved your words. I'm kidding. On your first point about complex challenges, I think it's an important nuance that, well, the approach to solving it has to recognize that this is new. It may not look new. So it's an important subtlety. You might think, oh, we did our talent strategy five years ago. Let's just change a few things and it's probably still good. But that's completely the wrong approach. So yes, it's new. It's never been solved before, but it's never been solved before now in this place with this group of people facing this environment and so on. So new, but not necessarily obviously new. May I just underscore something there, David? Yeah. And that is in this context. It is looking at it from the regulatory context. It's looking at it from the technological context. It's looking at it from the societal context, because all of those influences have bearing on how we run our businesses day in and day out. And so often we're so busy running our business, we don't have time to working in our business. We don't have time to work on our business. And this is an kind of an ultimate expression of working on the business to really look and see how it's fitting, how it's adapting, how it's thriving in this new environment with fresh approaches. That's right. So, you know, a great and very recent example is imagine you're a leader in manufacturing supply chain and you're in the midst of executing your plan or developing the next round of strategy. To have to deal with uh, COVID-19 and the scale and scope of disruption that is happening and is about to happen, that's completely new. So it's not like, hey, let's do the usual thing with our supply chain strategy. Right now, you need to be recognizing that this is new and you got to kind of start from brass tacks and figure it out given everything that's going on today and how this is shaping up. David, another example maybe we could talk about has to do with how leaders make decisions about how to take on some of these, what I'll call squishy problems. They're squishy, but they're significant. There isn't a clear outcome or solution, so you can't assign a task force to start working on a solution. This is about developing an approach to understanding what the solution is so that maybe you could choose to take it on or develop alliances or one thing or another in order to solve a significant solution. Is there an example of an organization or leader that you've worked with that's had an issue where they've had change occurring or maybe they've come into a new position and they knew something was wrong and the old way of approaching and solving those problems was not going to work and they came to that realization and that's when they started to realize the need to crack their own complexity that they were facing. Yeah, I mean, let me talk about Al, a new general manager at a natural gas utility with about 5,000 employees in Canada. Al was a new general manager coming into, again, this utility with decades and probably over a century of history and saw very clearly 
that the monopolistic behavior, you know, not a pure monopoly, but that complacency of having a market, having a captive market, and something that everybody needs, saw the complacency, saw the challenges going on around his industry and uh, many other industries as customer expectations change, as technology changes, as opportunities for productivity, cost-effectiveness emerge, and finding himself in a situation where others didn't see that and probably more importantly, didn't see the need to make any kind of significant change in response. So Al's first challenge, having kind of recognized that, was getting people aligned around the fact that there was a problem when, in fact, you know, the problem wasn't reflected in the finance uh, through the financial lens. So having done that and just kind of convincing his immediate team that something had to change, the job then became finding the right words and the right messaging to convey the sense of urgency to change to the rest of the organization. And he really struggled with that and had been struggling with that for some time. And what is it that led him to realize that he had identified a larger problem and in order to solve it, it wasn't going to take just new messaging, but it was going to take a a revolutionary approach, not an evolutionary approach? Yeah, I think, again, this is probably familiar to anyone who's come into a very old organization, almost an institution. You come in, you see the need for change, you know the need for change, and you're dealing with people who aren't there with you yet. So He probably saw the need for change because, A, he was told by whoever put him into this new position that that was his mandate. So I'm sure there were leading indicators that he was seeing and that, you know, the board, the parent company was seeing that signaled the need for change. And I think as he came in, he was caught off guard by the fact that there wasn't general understanding of that. And so really, the first conversations we had with him were about the wake-up call. So he Again, if you were following the steps in the, in the book, he acknowledged the complexity. He knew he was facing something complex. And he knew that he wasn't going to be able, because this is the way it was going, he wasn't going to be able to just, through sheer force of will, drive other people to make changes. And this was an organization, again, because of its age, because of the fact that people had worked their entire careers there, and then their children worked there as well. This was an organization that was very hierarchical and you know, followed what the leaders told them to do. But the kinds of changes he was trying to get underway, especially around sort of customer experience, were things that you just can't tell people to do. They really need to understand what they're being asked to do. They need to believe it and they need to behave differently. I said, David, can you give us an example, a specific example of how the customer experience, he wanted the customer experience to be different even though the customers themselves really didn't have choice, but he wanted to elevate that experience because it was necessary in the long range or the the functional operation of what he wanted to do to bring change to that organization to improve it. Yeah, I think, um, again, until fairly recently, dissatisfied customers, at least, you know, for that utility, dissatisfied customers didn't have uh, much they could do. They couldn't really put voice to their frustrations. They got their bills, they paid their bills. They might complain to somebody who sent them their bills, but really it, it led to nothing. But with the internet and customer voice and the ability to build movements online of dissatisfied customers demanding you know, better service, better cost, whatever those demands are, that puts pressure on the regulator 
to start to do something about that. So he was able to connect the dot bet- between a customer set with different expectations, with more meaningful way to make noise, and a regulator who could hear that noise and wanted to do something about it. And the fact that if they didn't do something more proactive about those demands and about cost, then the regulator always had the option of either shutting them down or putting someone else in control. Well, I want to share that for everyone listening, that is seriously strong leadership to proactively look in advance and anticipate a problem and start to solve that problem before you have to react to it because it's a whole different disposition, no matter what business or industry in, to solve problems in advance. David, don't you get the sense from talking with this leader of the utility that it would have been a very different type of environment for solving the problem if he had waited until the regulator had come around responding and reacting to all of the pressure that the customers felt and had complained about, and then they had to solve the problem versus doing it in advance. Yeah, that would have been too late. I mean, in that kind of uh, business, once the regulator has stepped in, you've got a big deficit of trust. There's been a lot of press and those kinds of things. It's, it's a lot to overcome. So he saw that that would be too late. But what was also interesting is I think this particular leader, Al, could have sort of gone about, well, let's do a change management project and you know, let's throw lots of money at this and get people over the course of the next six to 12 to 18 months starting to make the changes that are necessary and let's start here and then move it there. He knew that was going to be too slow and he knew that wasn't going to have the impact, again, probably based on his own experience with that model. So he had enough foresight to not only see the problem and need for action, but to also recognize that he needed a different approach and that if people didn't create their own sense of urgency, if they didn't create their own blueprint and roadmap for how to make those changes, then he was going to just hit resistance, constantly be trying to persuade people and always be the one person who was driving it. That's a non-trivial issue, David, in knowing that if you don't take the approach and you start to just peel the Band-Aid off slowly rather than take a, a serious approach to it and yank it and then deal with the approaches, he would have been so consumed with always being the one who had to push that issue. That's right. So that in itself, I think, is a really, really big lesson. Yeah, and I think if you're, if you're a very strong leader, you also recognize that it's likely that your tenure in any given place is finite. And so, yeah, you can kind of do your best while you're there and then move on. Or you can recognize that if it's all being driven by you and everyone's reliant on you, then when you move on, people will revert and the change won't stick. So he really, he really recognized that he needed to do it in a way that transferred ownership of, from him to everyone else. What a great lesson. David, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yes, I've been looking forward to it. David, if you think about all of the complexity you have to deal with in your day, you must have developed some sort of routine to prepare yourself to stay focused and productive throughout the day. What are two or three components of your morning routine for an ideal workday? It's it's interesting you ask. I am a very, very early riser. So earlier than you're thinking when I say that. I give myself a good four hours, three to four hours a day before other people are in the office because I know that there are things I need to do on the writing front and the thinking front that need to be done with solitude and without being interrupted. So rather than getting frustrated about not being able to do that by sort of 
trying to work my own work through the cracks in my day. I make sure that I have a good spurt of creative time in the morning. And then as other people come in, I have time for them and I'm not frustrated by interruptions. If you think about applying some of the complexity formula in your own life, what is one of the steps or skills that you've developed through your work in this area that's helped you out personally in living your life more effectively or being a better parent or husband? What occurs to you when I ask the question? I think I have personally really benefited from the insight that you don't get people aligned. You don't get people on the same page. You don't get people motivated and excited from a distance. So this notion, again, it's in our step four about localizing the solvers, connecting people directly to each other. That is so important in business and in personal life to recognize whether it's in how I parent my daughters, two of whom are adults now. I really very quickly abandon any hope of having a constructive conversation and resolving anything over the phone. I always try to make sure that we're in the same room when we have to talk about anything that's really important. There's something about being in the room with other people, looking them in the eyes, understanding how they're feeling about what you're saying, and really just being able to tap into all of the other cues that you get when you're physically present. That's one that just, I think, has become very natural to me. Text, phone calls, to me, that's for information. If you want to get into something in a meaningful way, you got to be in the same room. Boy, I so wholeheartedly agree with that one. If you had to put a slogan about the impact of your work that people could use in their own businesses on a billboard that every key stakeholder or decision maker would see as they drove past it in the morning, what would it say? Well, that is going to take a moment of thought. I think there's something about, I would say, be genuine, be earnest, operate with a sense of urgency be human. Somewhere in that zone is a slogan that I think just really gets at this notion about you have to be genuine. You have to seriously want to make progress on something in order to make progress. And you can't go it alone. It really does require connecting with others if you're going to do anything important. And David, as you think back over the past year or so, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? I think, again, I, probably many people who've just recently written a book and are at that point in their career where they're trying to transfer out of being in the operation to helping others learn how to operate. That's been the last year for me. So I've had to let go of trying to do everything, even though I recognize that for a lot of the things that other people are doing for me and around me now, I could probably do it faster myself. Uh, it's really important, though, to kind of step back, recognize that you know these are the people who are going to allow the company to scale, allow the thinking and the doing to spread, and that it really is a matter of equipping them to do what you used to do all the time. And that means letting go of kind of being the center of everything that happens. So that, that comes from the place of the business that I'm in but just in general, isn't that parenting as well? David, I'd like to share with you a perspective I've developed because I've had the same issue around delegating and letting go. And when I've thought of, well, I could do it faster, I could do it better, it was much more difficult for me to let go or ask someone else to do it. 
And it wasn't until I started asking a different question. I started asking myself, am I really adding the most value doing this? Right. And suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, I know where I could be adding the most value. It's, it's interacting with clients. It's, it's developing the strategy. It's preparing for the next event. And if I could have someone else do the research or look up the information, they may not be able to do it as quickly as I could in some cases. Many times they could do it faster. But so long as they're doing it and frees me up in order to do things that I can make unique contributions in that area. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And in medicine, they call it, I think, operating at the top of your license. So with a physician, with everything they could be doing, what you want them to be doing is what only they can do. And I think that's, you know, for any professional, there are things where you have, you know, unique and important value to deliver. And then there's other stuff that other people can do it, maybe not as well, maybe not as fast, but it's certainly not the best use of your time to be doing those things. So I, I think you're 100% correct. That's right. I really love that top of license metaphor because sure, a, a physician could come in and be taking your blood pressure, but his, his or her time is much better spent doing the diagnosis, working with you, answering questions that only he or she could answer. So nice, right. nice touch. Thank you. David, you've shared so many great ideas today on my quest for the best. And I just want to thank you so much for joining me and, and sharing, first of all, bringing back the memory of Harry Chapin was tremendous <laughs> and introducing um, the idea of the defenseman who overcame a lot of prejudice and pressure in order to do his best and still shined as an example in that way. You highlighted some important differences between complicated and complex problem solving. And we went through some great ideas that emerged through that example with Al, who took on a new natural gas utility and understood that even though it was a captive market, he needed to get out in front of the issue to proactively solve problems before people, customers who had new tools and new capabilities available to them to protest, to complain, to highlight areas of service where they actually were falling short to make those improvements before the regulators got pressure in order to make those changes. And that would have curtailed his influence and his ability to solve those problems and improve that situation. We talked about rising early, which I also love to do, to get your morning time in to work on your most important priorities. And then also understanding that if you really want to have influence, there's no substitute for being in the room together. David Benjamin, author of co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. I want to thank you once more for joining me on my quest for the best. This was genuinely my pleasure. It was really nice to talk to somebody who's read the book and has such deep insights into what we've been doing. Uh, I think I've learned from you in the course of the conversation, which is very valuable. Thank you. Thank you, David. And before we say goodbye, can you share with me where we can find out more about you and your work online? Yeah, the usual places. Uh, I'm ComplexityDB on LinkedIn. Sorry, on Twitter. It's at David Benjamin on LinkedIn and our website's Integrity Group. But we will link to all of your social media, your primary website and platform, and links to the book. So to make it really easy for everyone listening to find out more about these valuable ideas you've shared and the resources and services that you offer. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you again so much, David. Okay, thank you, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. 
please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.